looking again in, um, in the early chapter of, of Revelation today. Now, you may remember, um, going back a few months now, um, when I've been preaching, we, were, we, we spent a while actually looking at the, um, all the events of the Easter weekends. Uh, Jesus, um, the time he had with his disciples then before he was arrested, he was arrested in the garden, he was uh, taken before the high priest, um, there was a false trial, he was accused of all sort of stuff that didn't match up with the truth, um, and he was then, it was all predetermined really, he was led um, to Pilate, and he was found guilty of nothing other than saying that he is God, and he was put on a tree, he was hung on the cross, he was crucified, he was laid in a tomb, having been laid in the tomb, he was there, and three days later, um, the stone was rolled away from the tomb, and Jesus victoriously came to life, revealed himself to his disciples um, at many times in different ways, before then ascending into heaven. So having looked at then the, the events of the Easter story, we then began to look at the book of Revelation. I suppose answering the question really, where is Jesus now? If Jesus is not in the tomb, if we can't go somewhere to the Middle East and find his grave marked, this is where the king of the Jews lies. Uh, he was a revolutionary leader for a while and we had a great deal of hope in him, but now you can see he's dead because his grave is here. You can go inside, his body is there. Uh, he's not there. Well, if he's not there, we ask ourselves the question, where is he? And Revelation gives us this picture of Jesus now in glory on a heavenly throne at the Father's right hand. And he's very much alive and he is also amongst his church. He, even today and amongst us, he is, he's here, he's with us. And because he's alive and because he's with us, he speaks and he speaks to us today. And in the book of Revelation, he wants to speak to his church. And we've looked at a couple of messages that Jesus wants to bring uh, to some churches, some churches that were located in uh, modern-day Turkey. And we're going to look at the third of those, which is the church in Pergamum. So this is Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Let's read a few verses from there together. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So there are these, this group of churches. There are seven churches in total. We're looking at the message to the third church, the church in Pergamum today. And we've, seen, we've already seen a church that needed a warning. And we've re, also read about a church that was doing really, really well. Now we look at the church in Pergamum. This church belongs to a category that we could call uh, the mixed bag. This is a bag where you put your hand in and there's something good. 
But you might put your hand in another time and there's something bad. And so uh, Jesus is speaking to this church. And honestly, there's some good things to commend this church for. But also, uh, there are things that he needs to bring their attention to to warn them about. And um, I don't know if, if some of you have had some chocolate already this morning. Who here uh, is a fan of um, Revels? We have some, we have some, okay, um, oh, okay, there's a few iffy hands as well as some definite hands. Um, revels, revels are what I would describe as a mixed bag. In other words, you put your hand into your pack of revels and you, might, you pick out a chocolate. But within this bag, there's six varieties of chocolate. On the outside, they all look the same and you might have your personal favorite. So you dip in and you think, ah, oh, oh yes, it's the Malteser. Fantastic, I've picked out the Malteser. The Malteser is good. I like the Malteser. You put your hand in again. Ah, ah, the chocolate raisin. Okay, yeah, I can take the chocolate raisin. The chocolate raisin is okay. I like that. And you put your hand in again. Oh, coffee. Now, maybe there are some people who like that. That is, I I don't understand, personally. I'm sure there are people who get to a box of chocolates, and the very first one you go for is the coffee cream. God Bless you on your way. Um, I will save all my coffee creams for you. Just let me know. Um, The mixed bag. Pergamum is the mixed bag. There's some stuff in there which is great. There's stuff in this church which is, as Jesus kind of looks upon this church, as he kind of savors what's going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well done. Keep going. I'm so impressed with you. As well as then picking something out and going, hang on a minute. This isn't right. And in my opinion, says Jesus... This doesn't fit. And here is a church that is under pressure. It's got its good points, it's got its bad points, and uh, it's got some challenges that it faces. Now Jesus knows this church inside out, and the first thing he wants to bring their attention to is this, himself. And so he says in verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And we all say, amen, wonderful. That sounds so encouraging. This is encouraging, but we just need to do a little bit of work to find out what the encouragement is, because it can sound a little bit strange. The sharp, double-edged sword. Well, what is that about? And it can get even stranger when we look down to verse 16, and it refers to um, the sword of my mouth. And we see that earlier in chapter 1, where uh, John receives this revelation, this picture, this vision of Jesus. And he is... Completely mind-blowing image that he tries to describe in there as well. Um, Down in verse 16 of chapter 1, he describes, Out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. What's going on here? This sounds a little bit strange. Well, this sword is referring to God's words, Jesus' words. What Jesus says, what Jesus wants to say um, to the church. Now, are there any fans of The Apprentice here? Okay, during The Apprentice, um, you watch an episode, and it's, it's building to the, to the real crux point. You see the challenge, you see these people try to do something impressive, you think, my goodness, I tried to do that in sixth form, it's easy, why are you struggling with it? Uh, but anyway, they kind of do, this, they do the challenge, you see all the funny bits, it gets to the boardroom, and the tension's mounting, and the moment's waiting up, the moment's building up, until to someone, Lord Sugar is going to say, you're fired. And when it gets to the end of the series, he's actually going to say to someone else, you're hired. But we're kind of, we might debate it, we might be wondering which way is it going to go, and then his word comes, and that kind of decides the issue. Um, after that, there might be 
agreement or disagreement, but basically the matter is decided. Lord Sugar has spoken. You're fired or you're hired. And that settles the matter. What we're looking at here is Jesus' words, God's words, that ultimately and at the end of time will totally kind of settle the matter, will totally um, kind of uh, end the wondering and the debate. Jesus speaks, and when he speaks, he doesn't speak like Lord Sugar in a small and imperfect way. When God speaks, he speaks truth, and he speaks it absolutely accurately, and there's no kind of, there's no comeback really, there's no argument. God speaks and what he says is always true. This image here of Jesus with the, um, with the sharp double-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth um, looks back to a passage in the Old Testament in Isaiah. There's a few places in Isaiah where a similar uh, expression is used. One of those is in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. Describing there this, um, the Spirit of the Lord who will come, who will be fully anointed, um, sorry, a servant of the Lord will come, fully anointed with God's Spirit. Reading from verse 3, it says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So there's an image there in the Old Testament of Jesus who was then to come. And he wouldn't be swayed. He wouldn't show favoritism. When he spoke, it would be perfectly right and based on righteousness. No one could bend his ear and kind of twist his words. No, when Jesus speaks, it's with absolute pure justice and righteousness. Aware of the needs of the vulnerable, um, as well as um, aware of uh, of crimes and injustice that committed. He sees everything perfectly. And then we get this kind of stark-sounding verse. He, he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Every, every issue in history will have its verdict. God's words are true, not just in general terms, but in every situation. They're, they're sharp. They're, they're precise. They're accurate. They're effective and they're true. Now that, to the church in Pergamum, uh, was a source of great comfort. Because these were people who were facing real challenge, persecution and injustice. In a city like Pergamum, there would have been a proconsul, a Roman authority over the whole province, over the whole region. And he had what was called the right of the sword. And that meant, in other words, that he could decide at will who he wanted to execute. And there'd be no comeback. Um, and at the drop of the hat, at a whim, he could decide, right, that's, that's my decision. And you've got no power. The Christians would have been on the receiving end of that. They were, they were vulnerable. They were a threatened community. And so God wants to remind them, look, you're under threat. Even Antipas, my servant, he's been killed for his faith in me. But I want you to know that ultimately power rests with me, rests with God. So even though it can seem sometimes like injustice takes place and goes unnoticed, crimes take place maybe that we're even on the receiving end and they go unsolved, 
Or on the other side of the coin, someone can be held responsible or accountable for something that they didn't do. All of this mess can take place on the earth. God's church can be on the receiving end of it. Any of us can be on the receiving end of it. But nothing escapes God's attention. He's the judge of all history. He knows all the evidence inside out. He knows all the lies. He can cut through all the motives, all the attitudes. He knows what's good. He knows what's bad. And so that when he speaks, he speaks the truth. He brings a verdict which can't be argued with. Any injustice that is then experienced, well, that registers in heaven. Heaven is aware of what was going on in Pergamum. Heaven is aware of what's going on in this nation. Heaven is aware of what might be going on in your life. And you're crying out to God, what's going on here? I don't understand this. How can this be right? And heaven says, I know exactly. And there's a day of reckoning. And I'll bring everything to light. And I'll bring my verdict. And for the things that you need to be acquitted of, yet yeah, you'll, you'll be acquitted of. Um, for the things that people have tried to escape responsibility for, no, there's no escape. Because I'm God. I have this sharp double-edged sword. This, I, God is the, the divine judge who sees everything. And so he's bringing comfort to his church. He's bringing comfort to his church. He's bringing a well done to this church as well. He says, I know where you live. I mean, in a certain tone of voice. That could sound a little bit threatening, couldn't it? I know where you live. Um, but this is an encouragement. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, um, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is a church facing challenge, a people under pressure. Life is not easy for people living in Pergamum who stand by the name of Jesus. There's a number of challenges they face. One, uh, Satan lives in their town, uh, and he's even got his throne there. Well, that's, is that just some kind of odd uh, figure of, of, of speech? What, what's, what, what's behind that? Well, in some way, we can understand that perhaps at this time, Pergamum was Satan's base of operations. Now, Satan is not God. He's not present everywhere in creation. He's a created be being with limitations. And so as such, we don't see him. We might be aware of his activities or um, those that are allied with him. Um, but he has to base himself somewhere. And at this time, it would appear uh, from Jesus' words here in Revelation that he was basing himself in Pergamum. Well, why was that the case? Well, Pergamum would make a, uh, would make a lot of sense because it was the center of Roman government in the region. So in this region, you've got these, these new communities, these new uh, churches following Jesus, new disciples coming to him. But you've got opposition as well, opposition from the Roman government. They wanted people to worship the emperor. Uh, and there was the cult of emperor worship. And if you like, Pergamum was like a capital city for emperor worship, and it was also the center of a whole load of other uh, pagan religions and temples. Um, so there was even an altar there, well, and temples to a whole variety of different gods, all of which were officially accepted. One of them, uh, Zeus, he had an altar which was even shaped like a throne. What does that sound familiar? We have here, this is the city where Satan has his throne. So this is his base of operations at the moment where he is trying to oppose the advance of 
God's good message of good news. Jesus is alive. He died, but he rose again. So you can be forgiven of your sin, and you can be um, born into a new life, knowing God, and for eternity, uh, being his friend. That was the the message that was sending shockwaves through modern-day Turkey at the time. Um, But they were hitting up against massive um, opposition at the same time. So Satan lived there. Therefore, also, persecution was real. Antipas was martyred, showing what being a faithful witness to Jesus can lead to. And so this is real. This is a real well done. This is a real encouragement for this church. They're really being commended. You know, when Jesus, he was the faithful witness. He was arrested. He was tried. And what happened to his followers is that they deserted him. And he went alone. He went alone to the cross. And he suffered and died there for us. His disciples scattered. They were holed up. They were absolutely petrified. Um, Peter even had denied Jesus, knowing Jesus three times. And now they're kind of locked up in a room for fear of the Jews. They are scared. They're no longer really kind of putting Jesus' name out there, wearing that on their sleeve or whatever. They're kind of hidden away. But when Antipas, another faithful witness, presumably was arrested and killed, what do these disciples do? Well, they remain true to the name of Jesus. They don't renounce their faith. That is impressive. There's real encouragement here. You know, it takes guts to acknowledge the name of Jesus. It takes courage in your school to, to acknowledge that you follow Jesus. It's easier for me now here, standing and speaking from the Bible, to talk about Jesus and kind of own my faith, as it were, because you all have come to a church. We've all come here. It's Easter Sunday. It's kind of what you expect to hear. But you go into school when term starts up again, and for you maybe, you, maybe in primary school even, for you to kind of say, yeah, um, I'm following Jesus. Yeah, maybe you get laughed at for that. Maybe you get just jokes hurled your way. It can be the same for people going to work. It's to acknowledge the name of Jesus, and you get the flack. You get comeback. But God says, no, when you acknowledge me, I acknowledge you in heaven uh, before the angels. Isn't that amazing to think? As you're kind of tentatively thinking, I don't, well, I'm just going to nail my colors to the mast right here, and this isn't going to be comfortable, but I do love Jesus. I do want to follow him with my life. His word matters to me. And so I'm not going to get involved in that because, well, that's at odds with, with the fact that I want to live my life God's way. I'm going to say it. I'm going to do that. And well, maybe you do get the flack. Maybe you do get opposition. Maybe not as intense as they were experiencing of Pergamum, but of a different sort. And God just says, well done. Well done, my faithful witnesses. Well done, my disciples. In a challenge, under pressure, but staying true to my name, I commend you, he says. He also goes on to bring a warning. For me, this is the moment where I pick out the coffee-flavored sweet. It's not nice. Jesus says this. Nevertheless, although all, those, all that encouragement is real, I really do commend you for acknowledging my name. I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, 
by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is going on here? There's some reference here to some Old Testament guys, Balaam and Balak. There's reference as well to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Well, we don't know a whole deal about the Nicolaitans, but obviously, it's, from what we do know, it's going to be very similar to the teaching of Balaam. Now, you can read the account of Balaam in Numbers, in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, uh, in chapters 22 to 24. It's a bit lengthy, so that we won't look at that in detail now. But the general gist of it is this. God's people had been in Egypt enslaved and tormented uh, by the Pharaoh. God rescues them. God brings them out. And now they are a nomadic people. They've been freed from captivity. They've even gone through Dead Sea. The waters parted. They've been led through. And now they're waiting uh, to reach uh, the promised land that God has uh, got in store for them. But there is an, uh, another king, king of another nation, the Moabites. His name is Balak. And he sees the Israelites. He sees this group of nomadic people uh, wandering near his land. And so he goes and hires a prophet called Balaam um, because he wants Balaam to curse the Israelites for him. Um, and you almost get the impression Balaam would quite like to because probably there's a fair amount of money in it for him. Um, but God won't let him curse this people that he has blessed. Now what happens next is rather than Balak, king of the Moabites, decide, right, I'm going to directly attack them. I'm going to go to war against the Israelites. What happens instead is that it's like the Moabites move in next door. And uh, they want to kind of entice the Israelites into relationships they shouldn't have been having, into sexual sin, uh, why don't we move in together, uh, maybe the Moabites were saying. Uh, and they're enticing them not only in that way, but into worshipping their god, so-called god, called Baal. And they succeed. So it's not like a direct attack. It's kind of an invitation to compromise. They think, well, what's that got to do with Balaam? Surely at that point his job is done. But we see in Numbers 31, a little bit later on, that it was Balaam who advised the Moabites. He taught Balak, okay, God clearly wants to bless this people. Um, maybe an all-out frontal attack is not going to work. Um, but instead, why don't you just try and, and kind of mix with them and you can you basically dilute them. Uh, dilute their faith, dilute what they stand for, kind of just draw them in to worshipping your gods instead um, do that by getting into relationships with them, and, uh, and that way, God's plan will just kind of be thwarted and diluted. It kind of sounds similar to Pergamum, doesn't it? They had a direct attack. Antipas has been killed. There's persecution. There's challenge. But they resist that. That one didn't work. See, Satan is a bit crafty, but he's also not God. And so he's got to try out these different strategies. Oh, well, that hasn't worked, has it? Uh, that bit didn't work, so I'll, I'll try this instead. Um, I'm going to try and seduce God's people into compromise. So the teaching of Balaam, and by inference, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was similar, is this. It's okay to compromise your faith with the culture around you. 
Why don't you join in and imitate um, their lifestyle? And in fact, um, God doesn't mind. God's okay with that. You can worship more than one God. He's kind of like easygoing um, in that way. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's easy. We, we, we don't need to get into some massive confrontation with Rome. We don't need to get into some massive confrontation with other groups um, who say we should be worshipping Zeus or Dionysus or whoever they are. Um, yeah, we can just kind of take the easy line. The path of least resistance. Yeah, you can go along to that meeting. Uh, well, because well, God doesn't mind. You, you can compromise. Don't be so kind of zealous. Relax, chill out a bit. And so here in this church, there were those who were either directly teaching or by their lifestyle were kind of encouraging others uh, to compromise. And it's one of Satan's best strategies, I think. And, and so he'll try and, and probe away with this one from time to time, trying to push us as believers into over-identifying with the world around us. And so in Pergamum, that meant getting Christians to eat food at pagan worship ceremonies uh, that were dedicated to idols uh, and also to unite themselves sexually with anyone else they fancied. But the kind of the center of it seemed to revolve around these, these other worship festivals and feasts that were taking place to other gods in other temples. And the people were getting kind of drawn into that. Maybe there were financial reasons why they wanted to get drawn into that because uh, to go along to a temple um, and to kind of be involved in those kind of ceremonies was so at the heart of society, unlike today, because we're not like overtly very religious today, but uh, was so at the heart of society that really to make money in the world, to kind of do trade, to do business, well, that, that kind of meant that's where you went. You'd go along there and you'd eat the food and you'd shake hands and you'd make a deal. And so that was how you made your way in the world. So maybe that was a way, you know, that was the easy way in. Well, how can we kind of live in this city unless we kind of join in with what's going on? Uh, otherwise, we won't have food to put on the table. And so Satan was managing to kind of persuade and entice. Come on, just join in. It's okay. Don't. Don't get so worked up about it. What are the ways then in which Satan can, can tempt us and draw us into similar compromising decisions? There could be any number of thoughts that come into our mind that he uh, would like to um, kind of encourage. And so maybe God would put a red light and say, don't go that way. No, that's not really helpful. Don't, that's not good. But Satan wants to kind of help us see that really, oh, that's not red. There's a tinge of green in there. Look, you can go for it. Um, here's a few. Thought number one. It's okay because it won't affect me. You see, the, the idols aren't real. They aren't really gods. Uh, so it doesn't matter if I eat their food and go to their meetings because it's just not real. So it, it doesn't matter at all. I, I was once um, uh, in a youth group, and uh, we went along to the vicar's house, and the vicar played the most amazing practical joke, and um, I'm letting you all in on this, and so no one here can now kind of do this practical joke unless you find someone who, who hasn't heard this message. Um, he brought into the room 
a tiny green chili. And um, so I understand the smaller the chili, the, the, the kind of bigger the bite. Uh, this is, you know, it's going to hurt. Um, so it brings in a small green chili and then says, look, it doesn't affect me. And he just bit off the very tip of this green chili. And well, it didn't affect him at all. And so every young Wally in the room, like, my, like me, was then like lining up. Yes, I, I'm a man. I can handle this. It won't affect me either. Give the chili to me. And thankfully, um, someone else got in there ahead of me. And so I now know the practical joke without having suffered at the expense of it. Uh, because he then took a, the next bite of the green chili. But by then, because the vicar, nice guy, I did like him a lot, um, because he'd taken off the very nip of the chili, he then revealed the seeds inside, and so the next person to bite got a mouthful of the seeds and wanted a hosepipe in their face to relieve them from the, the potency of this chili. And we all laughed and pretended we didn't want to take a bite. It won't affect me, we think. It won't affect me. And sometimes we can look at maybe what other people are doing in life and think, well, it's fine, it seems to be okay for them. They get away with it, and, and life's going all right. Or can't I do the same? It won't really affect me. It's not, it's not real. Um, and yet we can sometimes be drawn, without realizing it, into stuff. It's like, well, that's not good. It's like a mouthful of chili. And maybe your first bite isn't really vicious, but maybe the second bite is going to start to um, start to hurt. And... Um, I'm just going to put out there one area in which I think this might apply. Alternative therapies. Now, I don't speak as a massive expert, but there are some alternative therapies um, which basically have their roots in Eastern mysticism. Okay, um, the, the roots of them would go back to uh, Hindu culture and Hindu belief and Hindu practice um, they've been kind of brought now, um, we're more aware of them, uh, uh, maybe things like, uh, if you've heard of things like Reiki or reflexology or yoga, um, certain types of acupuncture perhaps. Now there are things like this, which that's where their, their roots lie. Um, now maybe further, uh, further discoveries can be made. Um, that reveal kind of um, roots that are kind of neutral rather than negative. Um, but we just want to ask ourselves a question. What are we joining ourselves with? What are we just going along with if we just think, oh, no, it's, it's okay now. It's all right. It, it won't affect me. It's not really real anyway, all the Hindu stuff that went with it. Um, so I can do this, and it's fine. Well, what are we joining ourselves to? What are we kind of actively involving ourselves with? Well, which maybe isn't great, which maybe represents a compromise into the equivalent, today's equivalent, of eating food sacrificed to idols. They were kind of, this wasn't just picking something off the shelf and realizing, oh, that, I've just re- realized in hindsight this food was sacrificed to an idol. No, they were, they were actively going along to something. They were going along to something and participating in something, knowing that it had another God's name written over the top of the door. 
basically. And so this is talking about stuff where we're going along and maybe in the way that it's practiced and in the roots of this thing, it may not be kind of like massively overtly kind of written over the doorposts or whatever, but the roots lie in Eastern mysticism. The roots lie elsewhere. It's like, well, I think that's just compromise. It won't affect what you might think. Another thought would be this one. God doesn't mind. God doesn't mind, or as the Corinthians were fans of saying, everything's permissible uh, for me. Uh, This is the idea that following God shouldn't be very difficult, and that God will never ask us to do anything uh, that's challenging. So, if you have a really strong desire for something, it's probably okay to give in to it, because God wouldn't wouldn't want us to to repress ourselves from something if we really wanted it. Everything's okay. God doesn't really mind. So that's fine. Well, as Paul says to the Corinthians, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We can become, we can become mastered by decisions that we make. We might think, well, I'm in control of this. And then we realize, oh, no, no, it's in control of me. Um, I'm being controlled uh, by uh, something else. It's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's okay to do dot, 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 and you fill in the, get, the, the blank if you like. Um, I, God doesn't mind. Well, God wants us to be built up in our faith, not to get compromised. Another thought, it's just entertainment. I don't really, I don't really believe in it. It's, it's just entertaining. You see, not, not many of us, like, get involved with Satan, do we? Um, But there can be certain things which just get drawn in in a realm of entertainment. For example, uh, video games that are kind of fantasy-themed and kind of immerse you in a dark virtual world. So in order to progress, in order to get to the next level, um, you probably need to spend like 12 hours playing the game um, and in order to get to the next level, you need to kill more people. Come on. Oh, I let him get away. I need to kill him. I need to therefore get more weapons. I also need to, um, uh, to cast more spells. Um, but it's not real, so it's okay. So I'm just kind of giving myself to this, and, uh, and eventually, in this game, I'm going to become some kind of immortal. I think, oh, great. Um, I think, well, yeah, it's just entertainment. Is it permissible? Yeah. Is it beneficial? I'm kind of, that's up for debate, really. Um, you know, it's a great tactic, isn't it? If this is the enemy's tactic, it's quite a wise one. Take a bit of darkness, add a pinch of light, mix with entertainment media, um, uh, write it up into a book. Uh, write it really, really well, and then publish it, uh, or then publish the video game, and and therefore that doesn't that doesn't matter. And obviously, this is what Jesus is saying to his church in Pergamum. He's saying you you over identify with the world. And maybe there'll be other churches, and they they don't identify with the world enough. In other words, they don't go make friends. They don't go find out what's going on in the world. They're they're kind of. Uh, building a wall around themselves, a little Christian ghetto. Well, Jesus isn't addressing that kind of issue. He's addressing the issue over here with Pergamum, saying, no, you're too close. You're too close. Come, just create a bit more healthy, healthy distance. Again, there can be decisions where we think we're in control, but then it becomes in control of us. 
Video games can work like that. I'm, I want to buy that game. I'm going to play it now. And, oh, uh, five hours have slipped by. And not only that, and I, um, but I'm now wandering around the streets, and I can't just help picture myself um, kind of holding a gun as if I'm in third person. That's the point at which to be worried. <laughs> That's the point at which to think, okay, if you want to entertain yourself, maybe there's another way. Uh, maybe there's another way of using your leisure time. If that, I mean, that, it's a joke. But that is also serious. Someone got convicted, a 16-year-old has been convicted in court this week for murdering his mother because from the age of eight, he was existing on a diet of horror films and video games where this is the theme. Think It's just entertainment. Are we sure? Even if it is entertaining or in that genre, in that category, is it healthy? Uh, books can be the same. Again, take a bit of darkness, add a pinch of light. Uh, vampire literature. Um, again, I don't speak as a massive expert, so I'm, I'm very um, prepared to acknowledge um, that vampire books and vampire TV programs may be incredibly well written and, from a worldly point of view, worthy of an award. Um, or TV programs that, again, are, are kind of enthralling, um, you know, a, a book where you just want to turn the page. We've, we've all read those kind of books, uh, and you think, I, I want to find out, I want to find out, I'm, I'm right in this, I'm kind of emotionally attached to this uh, heroine or hero, I, I, I must read to the very end. Well, again, is this an, an example of just taking some darkness, adding a pinch of light, um, and then we can get kind of drawn into stuff, which is just not helpful. Um, so in, in Philippians, Paul says, look, whatever, whatever's good, whatever's praiseworthy, whatever's uh, kind of excellent and pure, think of these things and store these things up in your mind. And we go, yes, but I want to read that book. And not only that, but if I don't join in in some way with what's going on, then I'm not going to have any friends because there are so many people who also watch that. There are so many people who also read this. And if I'm not doing it, then I've got no conversation to be able to have with them. And maybe then we can even justify it on evangelistic grounds. Oh, that's great. Yes, I can read this book about darkness because I want to evangelize. I want to tell people about Jesus. No, just tell people about Jesus. He's the good news. We want to be aware of what's going on in culture, but we don't have to immerse ourselves in it in the same way. And so here we've got this church in Pergamum who are just getting kind of a warning light coming up. Jesus saying, you're doing so well to resist the challenge that persecution brings. But here's my warning. I have these few things against you. Please, please don't just mix as if it doesn't matter. Please don't just go along with what's normal in the world. Ask yourself, is this beneficial is this mastering or controlling me? What, what is the use of my time like at the moment? Am I kind of enthralled with Jesus, that he died and that he rose again? Am I enthralled with vampires and transcendental meditation? Let's ask ourselves those questions. Thankfully, wonderfully, Jesus doesn't leave the message there. He kind of 
gives the warning. He, he, provides, he, he tells them the way ahead. The way ahead is repent, therefore. Otherwise, I'll soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, um, this sharp sword comes to kind of um, bring judgment on those who are directly opposing God. But Jesus isn't talking to the world right here. He's talking to the church. He's talking to people who do believe in him. And the sword is double-edged. It kind of cuts us a little bit as well uh, when we need it. Um, just grabbing our attention again. So he says, no, repent. It's like, don't, don't sail so close to the wind anymore. Just decide from now. You're going you're to cut that out. Um, if that was where the message ended, it would be like, it would be like a stick without carrots. It would be like, go on, just shift without an encouragement. Look, I've got something better for you. And uh, my persuasion from this message and from these few verses is that the carrot that God presents to this church and perhaps to us as well is much bigger and better than the stick. Because he goes on to say this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Here are wonderful promises that far outweigh what was on offer earlier on. This, um, the food sacrificed to idols in uh, pagan temple worship and sexual immorality, whatever that was specifically involving, what God has to offer is better. And so when he comes to us and he says, as a, you need to turn away from this. You, you need to just leave that behind. Cut it out. Um, let go. Um, when he says that, he is then also bringing our attention to the even better thing that he wants to lead us into. It's almost like, well, why, why get enthralled with kind of um, a quick meal of fast food uh, when you can come over here and have like five-star, five-course banquet by a Michelin-rated, whatchamacallit, uh, chef. Oh, that's the word. Um, you know, why, you know, turn away from the burger. But why, Lord, I really like it. Because you look at all of this. Look, it's massive. And that's just for a time, and this is for eternity. Well, how do we get that? He says, you know, to him who overcomes, to him and to her who determines today, I in God, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm repenting of all of that. Uh, to him who does that and consistently does that, here are the promises. I'll give some of the hidden, hidden manna. Now we were looking earlier on at, or just mentioning, uh, at the time of Balaam, uh, God's people had come out of exile, uh, come out rather from captivity in Egypt, and they were a nomadic people. They had no obvious means of support. Uh, and they were, they were hoping to get in, they were, they were waiting, they were, they were looking towards their promised land, but they didn't have a land to call their own at this point. Well, how are they going to supply for themselves? Um, well, God provided for them manna, bread that came down each day from heaven. Um, a miraculous provision of food. So maybe they were thinking, oh, look, we'll, we'll be safe, we'll be secure if we merge in with the Moabites. And maybe that way we'll be able to eat a bit more food. It's like, no, God provided manna, a miraculous provision 
of food. God promises to sustain us when we flee from compromising sin and decide, I'm going to pursue only you, Lord. Those other things don't matter, even if it's just in the realm of entertainment. Doesn't, I'm, I'm cutting it off. I'm, 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 I'm turning around from it. I'm going to pursue only you. As we do that, God is sustaining us with manna. We're not just looking back to a distant memory of what God once did for us. I, you know, yeah, back in 1983, I, I got saved. It was a great moment. Ever since then, I've just been gritting my teeth to try and bear being a Christian through life. Um, that was my high point. Now, a few years later than 1983, uh, it's oh, just it's hard work. You know, well, there are aspects of the Christian faith. If you know, if you're if you consider yourself on the outside looking into this. Um, and you're thinking, oh, what, what is the crack with Christianity? And you're thinking, well, what's the catch? Well, there are things, I suppose, that God would cause us to think, no, don't have anything else to do with that now. Um, but the Christian life isn't drudgery. The Christian life isn't kind of just trying to eke out a living yourself. It's like God comes to his people and provides miraculously um, manna, manna from heaven, sustaining us in life so that we don't have to go uh, and, and get kind of enthralled with stuff that is un helpful. Jesus, when he was on the earth, had times when he was physically hungry. And maybe food wasn't immediately forthcoming, and his disciples would turn up, and they'd say to him, uh, Jesus would say to them, look, I've got food that you don't know anything about. I was like, what? Has someone already bought him a burger? And he's like, no, no, no. My food is to do the will of God who sent me. And um, that's, that sustained him. So he was in the will of God, and therefore he was being sustained by God, even though in the natural he didn't have much to eat uh, for lunchtime. And God does that uh, for us. When we're in the will of God, we have food that the world doesn't know anything about. He comes to us and he sustains us with, with manna. Manna that's hidden. Sounds a bit uh, peculiar, um, but it's, it's kind of referring to the fact that a jar of manna was collected and put in the temple. And it was kept there for generations to come. So they could all say, oh, don't you remember when? Once upon a time, we had manna. And God's saying, well, today you can have some more. It's been hidden, but here's some more. Um, I'm providing for you afresh. That's what God does. He also gives another wonderful promise. Um, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There's a whole number of things this could refer to. But given the theme of food, uh, given the, 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 the theme from, from manna and the, the food that was sacrificed to idols, this is probably referring to a kind of token that was given to show that you were invited to the party. This is like the white stone is your VIP ticket to the amazing banquet. So in the here and now, we are sustained by God's provision on earth of manna, but also we're looking forward to um, entering his heavenly kingdom, an amazing banquet with Jesus. That will put all the pagan food on the earth into the shade. Again, why, why snack on this stuff when we get to feast on what God has for us um, in eternity? He welcomes us in to his kind of wedding banquet for all time, um, where Nothing ever runs out. Nothing ever um, gets spoiled. And also, there's this reference here to 
having a new name written on it. When I was, at, when I was about this high, um, my, my brother had a best friend called Mark, and I so wanted to be called Mark, um, because Mark um, had, a, had a leather jacket, he wore cowboy boots, and he listened to Bon Jovi. And at that time, that was my definition of manhood. I thought, oh, why am I called Daniel? I want to be Mark. It's like, well, if I'd been called Mark, uh, nothing really would have changed. Uh, if I'd changed my name by Depol at the age of eight, which I wouldn't have been able to do anyway, I would still be me. I'd still have the same wardrobe. I'd still have the same kind of personality or whatever. I'd just have a different label. Is this just saying here, oh yeah, well, God just gives us a different label. No, a new name is far more profound than that. When God says, I'm going to give you a new name, he, sends, he says to someone like Simon, Simon, you're Peter. And, and Peter means rock. You're rocky. On, my, on this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. It's like Peter gets a new identity. And when God gives someone a new name, it doesn't just change a label on the outside. It says, I can change you. When I come into your life, yeah, you, you get manna from heaven, you get this ticket which is going to give you an eternal pass to the most amazing buffet in the universe, and you get a new name, you get a new character, you, your, your whole person is blessed, your whole person is made new. When I come into your life, I make you a new creation. When you repent and turn away from sin and decide to follow Jesus, it's not just changing a label. It's not just wearing a badge. Jesus himself comes into your life, into the inside, and he renews you, and he refreshes you, and he gives you a new, a new, uh, new hope, a new uh, destiny, and a new identity right in the here, here and now. A new, night, a new name. Earthly nobodies become heavenly somebodies in God's kingdom if they overcome, if they persevere, if they choose to avoid becoming too much like the world around them, if they choose to build their lives on the word of God rather than just go along with whatever is normal in the world. These are great promises to bear in mind when we are particularly aware of the pressure to conform and compromise. Uh, Maybe when we're fearful of what might happen if we swim against the tide because God has called us to follow him. It might seem as though Satan himself has just moved into the neighborhood. Well, let's look at what God says in his word. Let's look at these wonderful promises. When temptations come our way and whisper into our ear, it doesn't really matter. God won't mind. Just go along with your friends in whatever they decide to do. Whatever you do, try not to stand out as a Christian because that will really kind of not help you. When those kind of whispered temptations come into our mind, where do we go? What do we think? What do we counter that with? What is far better? What is on offer? We've got the word of God and we've got eternity to look forward to spending with our risen Savior. Let's pray together.